How many of you were here on Friday night for Pastor Gershom? So I got a, yeah, got a few of you. Yeah, it was a, it was a very different kind of service. Pastor Gershom is a pastor from Africa, and this is the second time that he's been here. We met him uh, through the Boones, uh, Pat and Shirley Boone, and uh, Marion took a real liking to him, and Gloria, I don't know if Gloria's here today, but uh, she and Marion have stayed in touch with him, and so he comes over, and he does a different kind of service. And I wanted to kind of compare and contrast a little bit. I know we're not supposed to do that, but uh, it's interesting because a lot of times people will tell me that I'm very intellectual. That's if they're being a little bit positive, and then cerebral if they're not. <laughs> so I get that a lot, and uh, you might be thinking, well, of course, you know, but I find that understandable and at the same time ironic. It's understandable because, yeah, I'm an introvert, you know, and kind of quiet. I stay sort of on an even keel uh, and, um, you know, kind of studious. I just sit here on a stool and, and uh, we talk about things and we go a lot deeper than uh, sometimes we probably should. But um, so I can understand that that kind of label or that kind of, of, of atmosphere that's created here. I find it ironic because I have also done everything that I can to convey the message that this journey of ours is not intellectual. Now, the intellectual part, the thinking part, the cognitive part can show us the door, but it can't take us through. That part is purely experiential. And the experience is emotional. And so we, we have this, this kind of dichotomy here. And it took me years to start to drop my overemphasis and reliance on the intellectual, on the cerebral, and kind of fall back into this experiential abandoning of self. Uh, it was a very different experience for me. And I hope that we're always getting a balance in here because that's really what we're trying to do. And I know maybe the message and the messenger here are at odds with each other to a certain degree, but that's always what we want to do. We want to convey this idea that even as we study, even as we try to re-understand, or as I like to say, understand the misunderstanding of what we think Jesus' message was from the pages of the New Testament, that we realize that in living it and experiencing it, it's at a completely different level. And it's not until or unless we let go of the intellectual. We let go of the implied control that the intellectual gives us that we finally will start to experience our God and experience what this is all about. And so, like St. Francis, who called himself the Jangular de Dieu. Did I say that right? <laughs> I'm looking at Nina because she speaks French. But it means God's clown, God's juggler, God's jester, God's joker. And he was the one who would stand on his head so that he could see the world the right way. And, uh, and it was just, just a nut. And working with the, the animals, preaching to the animals as well as, the, as to people. You know, that's not going to be me. I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. That's not my style. But I'm hoping that we can get some of that flavor. We can get some of that lightness. We can get some of that craziness. We can see Jesus as he's depicted back there and over here as a smiling Jesus, as a laughing Jesus, and realize that Jesus was also God's juggler. Jesus was also God's jester. Because once you get this good news in you, how could it be expressed any other way? And so this is what we're trying to get across. We're trying to, to get these things together. Now, Gershom Sakala, 
he embodies that. If the, for those of you who are here or here last time that he was here, you know he's got that energy. You know, he's got that sing-song kind of Baptist way of preaching, and, and you know, he's very emotional, energetic, really loud at times. And I was back there running sound, so I was writing his fader down and then, you know, just trying to pull it back up and down and up. You know, because that's where he's at. He's everywhere. He was jumping and he's moving and he's doing all these things at once. And there is that exuberance. There is that emotional quality, you know, and it's infectious. And everybody was, was you know, kind of connecting with that. Now, I'm familiar with that. My mother became a uh, charismatic Catholic when I was in high school. And so she was dragging me to healing uh, meetings and, and prayer meetings, and, and they were speaking in tongues and getting slain in the spirit and doing all this crazy stuff. So here I am, you know, 17 years old, just kind of looking around at stuff. And, uh, and it didn't matter whether it was a Catholic service or a Protestant service. I think she went to more Protestant service than Catholic service. It just it, it didn't matter. What mattered to her was the spirit. What mattered to her was to get into that space. And, um, and so I kind of grew up with that. I was familiar with that. When I landed back in the evangelical church in my early 30s, the church that I landed in was very charismatic as well. And so I felt like almost like I was coming home as the whole place went up in tongues. And if you've never heard an entire congregation singing in tongues, it's, it's an amazing quality. It's this, this unreal, unearthly sort of thing. And so there was that. And then uh, Marion and I spent some time at the Vineyard Church, which some of you will know is also very charismatic, very prophetic. And so I'm comfortable with these things, but I know that other people haven't been. And it's not their style particularly. And it, when you see it for the first time or you come up against it for the first time, it can be kind of jarring. And so I kind of just wanted to talk about this because beyond simple style and stylistic differences... Some of the approaches that we uh, use to get to our spirituality, to follow our faith life, have deeper questions. And I think those deeper questions do need to be answered. We need to try to get beyond there. And the basic question, is there a right or a wrong way to live out our faith? You know, does it have to be charismatic? Does it have to be non-charismatic? Is there a right or a wrong way to live out our faith? And you know, I guess the best way I can put this is if you really are living out your faith, then by definition, it's the right way. You know, the style doesn't really matter. But if you're not living out your faith, then not. But that's going to be the, the criteria. Not the stylistic way, not the way that we approach our, our rituals, our gatherings, you know, whatever liturgy that, that we create or accrue, but whether that deeper quality is really present. It's all about balance, once again, always about balance. I love what, what Gershom does, but it would look silly on me. It's just not me. It's not the way I would go about things, you know? And so I need to, I always remember that line from Clint Eastwood, a man's got to know his limitations, you know? It's like, all right, well, you don't go there, but I'm going to go in another place. And it's okay. It's about balance, you know, thank God that there are different flavors and different styles and different ways that we can approach and express our faith. And it's great that we're able to offer some of this to our group. For those whom it attracts, it attracts and repels the rest. And, and that's perfectly okay. The danger only comes when we start to fall down to one side or the other. Lose the balance. Fall down on one side and say, this is the way it has to be and everything else is wrong. Or this side and the same thing. That is where we start to lose the connection, lose what we're talking about. 
Now, the big part about uh, the first part of, of, of Gershom's service is a, a homily, is a, an actual message. Uh, and then he moves into praying for people, and it becomes a healing service at that point. And he had a lot of people coming up. There was uh, words of knowledge that were being spoken. If you're not familiar with that, it, it's kind of a, uh, an, a word from God that gives them some information that they wouldn't ordinarily have, in, in this case, about other people. And so they were sensing that there were certain problems and they were calling people up based on that and they would come up and they would pray and some of them became slain in the spirit and went down on the floor. And, and so it was very energetic. Which raises the question, what about this faith healing? What is faith healing all about? Is it real? How does it work? This is a question that I get a lot, especially you know, when Gershom comes or people are exposed to other types of services. What is this about faith healing? What are we supposed to do about this? How are we supposed to approach it? What are we supposed to think? And again, I think it's about balance. Does God heal? Of course God heals. But how or when is still a mystery to us. We don't know such things. There's no formula. There's no way that we can guarantee that God will heal on command, that God will create the circumstances that we really want. And it's not about being deserving either. My first, I guess, dealing with this in a kind of a painful way was probably, I don't know, maybe 30 years ago when I had landed at this church that I was telling you about. And they supported a missionary couple um, and who had two small children in Romania. And so this couple with their kids were living in Romania and they were doing missionary work. And the church would send money to them and collect money for them. And then at intervals, the couple and their kids would come back to the U.S. and speak to us and, you know, up at the, at the podium, take a Sunday and tell us about everything that was going on in their ministry. And then, of course, looking for more support. And I just couldn't believe what this couple was doing. It was just looked so amazing to me. And I had them way up on this pedestal. And, and it's just like, this is amazing work. I can't even imagine doing what they're doing uh, under those circumstances. And then the woman, her name was Kathy, uh, was diagnosed with cancer. And so they shelled really quickly back to the United States so they could take care, or they could take advantage of the health care here. And then, of course, we went into prayer mode as a church, and everybody was praying, and we would have you know, just chunks of time, 10, 15 minutes within a service where everybody was praying and praying in tongues and praying for the healing. And I was thinking, I just know that Kathy's going to be healed. Look what she's doing. Look what's going on here. And, and how could she not be healed with every one of us in such agreement? And with, I think, six months, she was dead. And I had to try to process that. What in the world happened here? How does this work? What is prayer or intercessory prayer or healing? And I had to really start to look at this thing in a completely new way. If anyone was deserving, they were, with two small children and everything that was going on in their lives. So what am I supposed to make of this? What are we supposed to make of this? How are we supposed to look at faith healing? The best explanation that I've heard came from Rocco Erico, and I don't some of you might remember when he came and spoke here, but uh, he's an Aramaic scholar and uh, has been you know, trying to get across the Aramaic message for 20, 25 years now. And he said that spirit is movement. Spirit is energy that's always in motion. But at times within us, we, we get blockages. 
We get blocked up. That could be spiritual, it could be emotional, it can be psychological, but where the energy gets blocked, and where the energy is blocked, some sort of physical malady will ensue. And so the faith healing is the releasing of that blockage, which allows the spirit to flow back through again. And I, you know, that made sense to me. I thought, you know, that's as good an explanation as any. There are so many cases where the physical and the spiritual are linked. You know, there are studies that show that people of prayer heal faster and, and are move through treatment better than others. And of course, there's all kinds of documented cases of people being healed with no real medical explanation. And so that idea of them, some sort of blockage where the spirit isn't flowing through us. Spirit is always flowing, but somehow it's damned or blocked with us and it flows through. And sometimes that releasing of the blockage needs a catalyst, needs something for the person to be able to focus on. And if they can't focus just on the unseen God, that's where possibly a faith healer can come into play. A faith healer is the focus upon which a person can put their faith and allow that complete abandonment to the movement of spirit to to come back into play. He told a funny story about a woman who thought that her house was either possessed or haunted, but she felt this presence or this oppression in her house and it was freaking her out and making her to, you know, uneasy to the point that <coughs> she didn't even want to go home. And so he told her, "Okay, what you do is you take some water and you bless the water and you sprinkle it throughout the house." And so she went home to do that. And then when she came back to tell him that she had done it, she was all worried because halfway through the sprinkling, she ran out of water. And so she went back and refilled and started over again. But she said, will that work? You know, since I ran out of water and I had to start over again, did that work? And he said, did you use the same bowl? She goes, yeah. <laughs> did you use the same tap to pour the water? She goes, yeah. He says, then it's okay. It works. You know? And from that point on, she felt like her house was clean. This house is clean. Now, what happened there? I mean, it sounds kind of funny. It sounds totally superstitious. But the point was, she needed a focal point to unblock whatever it is that was blocked in her. And Rocco supplied that with this task for her to do that in and of itself was meaningless. He knew it was meaningless, but it gave her something to do. It gave her a focal point. It allowed her to release this energy and to be able to flow again. Now, that can explain some things. I don't know how it explains you know, limbs you know, stretching out to be the same length as the other limb and some of the other things I've heard. And I don't even pretend to have an explanation for everything. But that explanation gave me at least a framework upon which to hang what is going on. Because it's really important for us to understand the healer that is in front of you, that faith healer, doesn't heal. They don't heal. They don't do anything except be that catalyst Maybe be that, that face of the unseen God. Do you know that Jesus never told anybody, I heal you? Jesus never told anybody, I forgive you. He always said, your faith has made you whole. Your faith has saved you. Jesus was recognizing the same thing in and of himself. There is a participation that happens in healing. It isn't God just raining something down on us that we didn't have before. God has already given everything that we will ever get in our existence since the beginning of time. It's already here. It's already now. It's up to us to unblock the flow. It's up to us to have that conviction deep enough that allows us to act as if certain things are true and then find out that they actually are. This is a very different way of looking at this, you know, 
this catalyst, this healer that, that gives someone a face and gives someone the ability to unleash the faith that they have within. But just like with Kathy, sometimes there's no healing. And what do we do with that? How are we supposed to handle that? Y'all know Mother Teresa? Anybody here not know Mother Teresa, at least by reputation? You know, little four-foot nothing Mother Teresa, who in 1948 finally got the Catholic Church to give her dispensation to go out into the mission field. Women didn't do that back then. She was a pioneer in 1948 to be allowed to go on her own without a male escort and start a mission in Calcutta for the, for the dead and the dying. That was unheard of. But she does this. And within decades, she has this international ministry, this international renown, and she's being held up as one of the great spiritual masters on a global scale. And so we hold her way up on this pedestal as well. And we think if anyone had the kind of faith that we're talking about here, the faith that moves and unblocks, it would be Teresa. What's interesting, just 10 years ago, 8 years ago now, Many of the letters that she wrote to her superiors and to her spiritual directors became published, became public knowledge. And in that, we got another site of, of Teresa that was hard to even believe. It was hard to process. I want to read you just a few little snippets of these letters of hers. In 1953, you know, this is only five years after she started her work. She writes, Lord, my God, who am I that you should forsake me? The child of your love and now become as the most hated one. The one you have thrown away is unwanted, unloved. I call, I cling, I want, and there is no one to answer. No one on whom I can cling. No, no one. Alone. Where is my faith? Even deep down right in there is nothing but emptiness and darkness. My God. How painful is this unknown pain? I have no faith. I dare not utter words and thoughts that crowd in my heart and make me suffer untold agony. 1955, the more I want him, the less I am wanted. 1956, such deep longing for God and repulsed, empty, no faith, no love, no zeal. The saving of souls holds no attraction. Heaven means nothing. Pray for me, please, that I keep smiling at him in spite of everything. 1959, what do I labor for? If there be no God, if there can be no soul, if there is no soul, then Jesus, you also are not true? I utter words of community prayers and try my utmost to get out of every word the sweetness it has to give, but my prayer of union is not there any longer. I no longer pray. 1962, if I ever become a saint, I surely will be one of darkness. I will continually be absent from heaven to light the light of those in darkness on earth. I am willing to suffer for all eternity if this is possible. 1979. Jesus has a very special love for you, she's writing to her director. But as for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see, listen and do not hear. The tongue moves in prayer but does not speak. I want you to pray for me that I let him have a free hand. And then finally, my smile is a mask or a cloak that covers everything. I spoke as if my heart was in love with God, tender personal love. If you were there, you would have said, what hypocrisy. Is that amazing? 
some emotional or psychological or spiritual issue kept her from being able to feel God's presence for 60 years. <laughs> 60 years. Nobody knows what it was. I'm sure she didn't know what it was. It felt like abandonment to her. It felt like the death of everything that she was about. It felt like hypocrisy. She had a really strong conversion experience, a really strong felt love affair with God that started the whole thing and impelled her to move into her ministry and her life's work. And when that moved to a different place, maybe she was trying to recreate it. Maybe she was judging everything by that experience. I don't know. It makes sense. I didn't have that kind of strong conversion experience, and so I don't have that to compare with in my own life. But I can imagine if I did. And some of the people who tell me about their experiences, and then when they don't feel that high anymore, they don't feel that pink cloud anymore, they think something's wrong. They're wondering, what has gone out of their life? Well, nothing has. God is still just as present as ever, but the felt response is different. And if you fight that and you continue to judge it as being wrong, something wrong with you, you can permanentize it. Is that what happened to Teresa? I don't know. When a few of these letters were written to her fellow nuns, their mouths just dropped. They had no idea. Because the Teresa they knew was the one who was always smiling, always laughing, always affirming, always creating hope for everyone around her, even when she didn't feel it inside. Here's this one little quote from her. Spread love everywhere you go. Let no one ever come to you without leaving happier. And that's the way she lived. Regardless of what she felt, she continued to live that way. But she wasn't healed in the way that we think she was healed. And it wasn't for lack of prayer. Well, there's someone in the New Testament who had the same experience. You all remember Paul? Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Now what is he talking about? This passage immediately follows the, the passage where he's talking about his transporting into what he called the third heaven. Now in ancient Jewish cosmology, there were three heavens. The first heaven was just the aerial part where the clouds and the birds fly. And above that was the, the, the place of the stars and the, and the lights of the heaven and the firmament. And above that was the abode where God kept his throne and the angels actually lived. And so Paul is telling us about taking, he doesn't know if it was in the body or not, but up to the third heaven and everything that he saw there, the things that he couldn't even relate to us. And so then he says, so that he didn't get a big head about this, so that he didn't get a big ego complex about having this special attention from God. He's given this thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. And concerning this, I implored the Lord three times, and three being this perfect number. There's probably a lot more than three, I'll tell you that. But three times says he did it until he finally stopped doing it. He implored the Lord three times that it might leave me, and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Paul was not healed 
We have no idea what this thorn was. And it's not for lack of trying. These Bible expositors have used every little clue that they can come up with to try to figure out. And here's a list of the things that they think might have been Paul's thorn. Just temptation, general temptation, you know, in, in terms of wanting to do things that were outside of his code. A chronic eye infection or problem, malaria, migraine headaches, epilepsy, even a speech impediment. And I think some of you can probably relate to some of those, you know, migraines and other problems that just keep coming back, reducing your quality of life. He's imploring. Some people have said, no, it wasn't a thing that was his thorn. It was a person that was his thorn. They point to Alexander the coppersmith, who he says did me great harm. Maybe this was like his Moriarty, his arch nemesis that kept coming back and creating problems for him. We have no idea. It doesn't really matter. It's kind of fun to speculate bring it home to us and some of the problems that we face. But he wasn't healed. But Paul was able to do something here. He was able to see the purpose in the pain. He was able to find meaning in the pain that made it bearable for him, that turned the whole thing around. Besides not just keeping him humble, juxtaposed against all the other things that kept him on stage and in the limelight, he also realized that it was important for him to experience complete dependence with his God. It was important for him to see that in his weakness, God's power could move through and shine the brightest. And so he found purpose there. He found a way of being able to deal with the non-healing that he asked for that made it a positive in his life. He was able to motivate him to move further forward. But even when the healing does occur, is it an event or is it a process? We keep coming back to this a lot, especially with respect to salvation. Is salvation an event or a process? The church has always pretty much looked at it exclusively as an event. You get baptized, you have a conversion experience, you give your heart to Jesus, you say the sinner's prayer, and you're done. Now we've got to deal with what happens when you backslide, what happens when you relapse. You know, Is it once saved, always saved? Did you not really have it? But what it comes down to, is there a process to these things as well? You know, I know many people who have told me that they're healed. And at this point, I kind of cringe when I hear that, especially from addicts and alcoholics. God healed me of my addiction. Because if you check back in a few months or a few years, you find out that old patterns have reestablished themselves. If there wasn't also a process backing that up, some kind of program, some kind of plan, some kind of daily rededication action that solidified that change, that event in their lives. And so once again, it's not an either or. It becomes a both and. It's an event and a process at the same time. I was talking to uh, Pastor Gershom after the service on Friday night, and he was talking about having worked with especially two or three people that are from our community and in, in, in the realm of healing. And he was saying, you know, sometimes it's not a good thing to heal someone all at once. Sometimes they can't deal with that, to heal them all at once. Sometimes it's better to heal in layers. That's the way he put it, in layers. I thought that was really interesting. And even though he didn't say it as such, what he was implying is that there is a process to this. What he does... As, as this catalyst, as this, this person in front of the person who is looking for healing and experiencing this 
faith encounter you know, is momentary. But sometimes it's better off in layers. I don't know if he is, was trying to express to me or thinking what I'm trying to convey to you. So if I'm putting words in his mouth, Gershom, I'm so sorry, but I'm going for it anyway because the point I want to make and what I thought that he was saying is yes, there is a participation on our part. There is a process to this that is so important for us to understand that healing, conversion, salvation, Paul said about, about salvation, you work it out. You work it out in fear and trembling. The, the church has made a distinction between salvation and sanctification. That's okay. If salvation is the event and, sal- and sanctification is the process by which we really bring this down into every muscle and fiber and every choice and every moment of our lives, I can deal with that. But there's a process here. Jesus seems to imply the same thing. Take a look at Matthew 12, at verse 43. Now, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. And then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself and goes in and lives there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Okay, we need to put this in context. What's happening in this, this pericope, this, this little story here? Jesus was, acu- Jesus was casting a demon out of a man, right? And the Pharisees accuse him of casting out the demon by the power of Beelzebub. In other words, he's casting out demons by the power of the devil. And Jesus turns that logic on its head. And he's saying, hey, wait a minute. You know, a kingdom, a city, a house that is divided against itself cannot stand. If it's by the power of the devil that I cast out the devil, then the devil's kingdom is nothing. And so he just turns the whole thing on its head. And then he goes into a whole monologue, you know, trying to talk to what he calls this evil or adulterous generation these Pharisees, trying to talk to them about what it is that you are doing to the people and to yourselves as you continue to fight for this turf that you've carved out for yourself. And then one of the illustrations that he uses to try to get across to them and everyone who's listening is this parable. Talking about a spirit going out of a man, the house is now swept and clean, but left empty, unoccupied. We don't have any air conditioning at our house. We just moved to San Clemente. People were telling us, we don't need air conditioning in San Clemente, you know, except for last week. (laughs) You know, maybe two to three weeks out of the year. So we're looking, okay, I don't really want to put in air conditioning. Go back to the electrical bills we had in Tribuco Canyon. But then this thing came up about a whole house fan. Have you heard of these suckers? You put them in your attic and it creates negative pressure in your house and so if the air outside is cooler than the air inside, then it'll suck everything in through the windows and you know, replace the whole volume of the house in, I don't know, three minutes or something like that and cool your house down and cool the attic down and make this huge difference uh, in your, the temperature of the house. I don't know if that's true. It doesn't really matter. The whole point of me telling you that story is the negative pressure that's created in the house. That's kind of interesting. You create a negative pressure and it sucks things in. You cannot live your life as a negative. It doesn't work. Because what you're doing, by taking out all the things that you don't want, by trying to follow the law, by trying to be a good person, 
by stopping all your obsessive compulsions, addictions, and everything, you're creating a negative pressure in your spirit that's just going to suck the next thing in. And this is exactly what Jesus is telling us. The key word there is unoccupied. The key word there is empty. The house was swept and clean, but it was left empty with negative pressure. It's going to suck the next thing in. And you're going to end up worse in the final analysis than you were at the beginning. Is that really what Jesus was talking about? Well, with respect to the Pharisees, the people that he was actually speaking to at the time, he's talking to them about the law. You think you can just follow the law into the kingdom? It's not going to work that way. By creating this restriction on yourselves and everyone else, you're just creating this unoccupied house. Other people say, well, more generally, no. It's talking about someone who's had a conversion experience, was baptized into the church, and then relapses, then backslides, you know? They were the ones who left the house empty and unoccupied. In either case, what Jesus is talking about is there is no indwelling of the Spirit. The Spirit hasn't come in yet. We have taken care of the logistics. We've taken care of ethics and morality, possibly, lawfulness, but we haven't gotten filled with a Spirit that is going to create the positive pressure that equalizes and allows us to live our lives. It's this way with the process of healing. The event cleans and sweeps the house, but it creates a negative pressure that unless we then back it up with a process of sanctification, of allowing the Spirit to really indwell us, to find out what that actually means, then our final state can be worse than the first. This is what Jesus is trying to get across here. It's so important for us to understand what he's trying to tell us about all of this. If we're always looking for healing to take away the pain, then we're missing the whole point of what sanctification is all about. What's the point of healing anyway? Just to fix our problems, is that all we want God to do? Is the point of healing so that we can all die with all our fingers and toes and all of our body parts in the right place, operating as they should? Is that really what all healing is about? Do you know when Jesus healed, what did he heal? The blind saw, the deaf heard, the lame walked, right? The lepers were cleansed, and the dead were brought back to life. Think about those stories. Think about those healing events. Every one of them has a spiritual component. It's all about setting captives free. It's about being able to see what you couldn't see before and hear what you couldn't hear before. Be able to move and walk and do things that you didn't do before. For the lepers to be cleansed, it means that they were reconnected and able to come back into community and actually buy and sell and live within the walls of the city. Whereas as long as they were unclean, they couldn't do that. And for the dead to live again, of course that has a spiritual component. Now I'm not saying that all of these healings are metaphorical. It's not that but that there is a spiritual component that is layered onto and is, in the final, ultimate analysis, the most important piece of this. It means much less whether we are healed of a physical infirmity than if we understand life from a spiritual perspective that allows us to move into what Jesus calls kingdom. That's the point of these healings. You know, there are spiritual at root Always spiritual at root. But a physical healing can clear the way, can bring the hope that is needed for the spiritual healing. 
See that? And vice versa. Sometimes it works the other way. And so the physical healing is so important, not just for the person who's getting it, but for the people who are witnessing it as well. It brings the hope. It brings the power of God into a place where it can be digested. It can be used to spiritual advantage. And so another thing that Jesus does is pack the demons up and send them going, or send them packing. (laughs) To cleanse people of the demons. And so this begs another question. And Marion and I were talking about this yesterday morning. You know, are demons real? You know, is, is, is exorcism real? Is this really happening? Obviously the Bible talks about them. And so we need to talk about that as well. She, she um, told me that she read a book written by a man who was a seer. And he, since earliest childhood, he could see things, you know, in people. He could see problems and pain and, and things about them, you know, kind of like auras and, and different things. And it was all kind of done with, with images. And so, for instance, he saw someone with a stick protruding from their shoulder and he knew that they had some pain in their shoulder. And he saw another person with a demon hovering over them. And so he knew that they had a spiritual oppression, you know. And Marion said, well, if he saw that, you know, then demons must be real. And I said, well, hold on a second. He saw a stick in the shoulder, right? Now, we know that there wasn't literally a stick in the shoulder, but the stick in the shoulder was representative. It was a metaphor for the pain that was happening in that person's life. So if we understand that the stick is a metaphor, an image standing for the pain, but we automatically assume that the demon is real because that's something that we can't see, it's possible that the demon is also metaphor for the spiritual, emotional, psychological oppression that the person is going through. Now, before you start to pick up rocks to throw at me, I'm not telling you that I don't believe that there are demons or there is a devil or that there are angels. But what I am saying is that when we are speaking about the divine, when we are speaking about the spiritual, the only language we can use to describe something that is indescribable and inexpressible is metaphor. It's all we've got to work with. All spiritual language is metaphorical by definition. It has to be. How are you going to describe something that can't be described, that is infinite? Paul came from the third heaven and said, I can't tell you what I saw there. It can't be described except in metaphor. And so that goes with our language when we speak to each other, when we write books, But it also goes for the Bible, too. What we read in the Bible has got to be metaphor to some degree to try to express what can't be expressed about the infinite God. Now, before you start to pick up rocks again, let me back up and say, that doesn't mean that everything that is stated in the Bible is metaphor. Did Jesus' miracles really happen? Yeah, I believe they did. But there's also metaphorical language embedded there that gives us a deeper look at what is really going on beneath the surface and where we can really apply ourselves to be able to live our lives in a different direction. The trick is, where do you draw the line between what is metaphorical and what is literal? And probably every one of us in this room is going to draw that line at different places. And you know what? That's okay. That's okay. You need to go out and become convinced of what you're convinced of. It doesn't matter what I'm convinced of. Let's just discuss these things so that you have permission at least to look underneath the hood and find out for yourself. But wherever you land on this, from a completely literal reading of Scripture and life and a metaphorical one, realize, again, 
It's not either or. It's both and. It's bringing the two together to see the spiritual layered on top of the physical so that these physical happenings don't end up relegated to a historical perspective from 2,000 years ago, but become living and active in our lives right here, right now, regardless of how changed the circumstances of our lives may be, as opposed to the people that are being depicted in our scriptures. It's so important for us to, to look at this this way, so that we can see there is purpose in the pain, as Paul found out that expression of, of all of this. Marion had another conversation with a man Friday night. <laughs> and he has a way of expressing himself. He would go up to everybody and say, what is God telling you today? You know, that's how he would open the conversation. What's God telling you today? And so Marion took him at his word and she started telling him, you know, it's been a really difficult week for me. I've had a lot of hardships. It's been really difficult for me to process Uh, some of the things that are happening, both physically and emotionally. But what it's teaching me and what God is telling me is that I'm already here and always here. No matter how bad or how good, it doesn't make a difference. I'm always here. I'm always guiding. I'm always infusing. I'm always providing whatever it is that you need. And the guide was like shocked and surprised at what she was telling him. And then he launched in and said, I was having a hard time too. He said he was having a hard time. And that's why he was at the service, because he knew he needed to get right with God. He knew that he needed to pray in order to be able to restore the blessing and God's favor on his life. Very different perspective. And yet Marion said that he kept coming back to her at, at intervals throughout the night and saying, I'm still thinking about what you said. I'm processing, you know. Here's the problem. The church has not been teaching us that there is purpose in pain. The church has been teaching us that pain, through implication or from not saying anything at all, is a removal or withholding of God's blessing. And there's something that we've done wrong and we need to right it. We need to be healed of it in order to be back into God's blessing so that these circumstances will be changed and nothing could be further from the truth. That's a real damage, a real abuse, to let that implication stand in the minds of the people that God somehow withholds, that God somehow re just turns his back, if we aren't doing what we're supposed to be doing, that is antithetical to what Jesus was teaching about the good news, about the way that he operated in life. You never saw Jesus withholding anything from anyone ever, regardless of who they were or how well they were following the law at the time. And then he said, I and the Father are one, and if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so there is this connection Jesus is trying to show us that there is this shape to our spiritual journey that necessitates a descent. It necessitates an emptying. It necessitates going into a place of disturbance, a place of disorientation, before we come out the other side. And he's saying this over and over and over again with so many of his sayings. You want to find your life, you've got to lose it. You want to sit at the head of the table, you sit at the foot of the table. And then he expresses it in his own life. To die on the cross naked and apparently alone, and then to go into the grave for three days only to be resurrected again. That's the shape. We've lost the the fullness of this way of Jesus and what he's trying to tell us to do. And if we're only looking for healing, we're looking for that beam me up out of all of this 
this pain and this disorientation, then we will never be able to grow and go where Jesus went. And this is what he's trying to show us. He's trying to tell us. It can be called the Paschal Mystery and has been called the Paschal Mystery, the shape of Jesus' death and resurrection, but it is the shape of our journey. And wherever you draw that metaphor line, however you understand Whatever you come to believe is going to have definite effects in your life. And we need to look at those effects to find out how good our belief system really is. Because what you believe will always have an effect. Take a look in your inserts if you've got them, because I wrote them out, some of them out that I think are really important for us to consider. Because the effect of your beliefs, wherever you come down on all of this that we've been talking about, should never create a fear that God withholds, abandons, or turns his back. If that is the basis of your belief, something's wrong, because that's not what Jesus was telling us. It should never distract from the present moment, the present relationship, or present circumstances. What we believe should focus us here and focus us now. It should never defer happiness or fulfillment to a future time, a future outcome, or to a future healing. Again, it should be here, it should be now. Your belief should never transfer responsibility for personal choice to someone or something else. We can't say the devil made me do it. We can't say that we're oppressed by demons. We can't say that we're victims. We have a choice. And our belief system should reaffirm that. Our choice is to hitch our wagon to the power that's greater than ourselves that will take us wherever we want to go. Even in our powerlessness, that's the choice we have. Our beliefs should always affirm that you am enough. Okay, this is what happens when you write this stuff at um, 1 o'clock in the morning. I thought I proofread. <laughs> I had it, I am enough, and then I changed it to second person and didn't change the verb as well as the pronoun. So, your belief should always affirm that you are enough and completely acceptable right here now. It should always reinforce a basic okayness in life, a character of contentment. It should always point to God's presence in all circumstances. Whether we judge those circumstances to be good or bad makes no never mind that God is always present. And our belief should always inspire and nurture hope, a blessed assurance that these things are true. Before we close, I wanted to read just a couple of paragraphs from Richard Vohr that I think kind of ties all this together. He writes, when I was a young man, I liked ideas and books quite a lot, and I still read a great deal. I still read a great deal. But each time I come back from a long hermitage retreat, that would be a time alone, just in prayer and silence and solitude, right? I have no desire to read a book for the next few weeks or even months. For a while, I know there is nothing in any book that is going to be better, more truthful, or more solid than what I have just experienced on the cellular heart and soul level. Gosh, I understand that so well. It took me 10 years to get to a point where I could say anything close to that, where finally it wasn't about what I could put in my brain. It wasn't about factoids that I could read to try to control some sort of understanding, but that it was this pure experience that was lived. If you ask me what it is I know, I would be hard-pressed to tell you. All I know is that there is a deep okayness to life. Yeah. Despite all the contradictions, which has become even more evident in the silence. 
Even when much is terrible, seemingly contradictory, unjust, and inconsistent, somehow sadness and joy are able to coexist at the same time. The negative value of things no longer cancels out the positive, nor does the positive deny the negative. This is ultimately not intellectual, but the intellect can bring us to the door, and it tempers a pure emotion, but he's showing us that both-and quality. And whatever your personal calling or your delivery system for the world, it must proceed from a foundational yes to life. If your prayer goes deep, your whole view of the world will change from fear and reaction to deep and positive connection. Because you don't live inside a fragile and encapsulated self anymore. You're moving from ego consciousness to soul awareness, from being driven by negative motivations to being drawn from a positive source within. If your prayer goes deep, you will find yourself thinking much more in terms of both and rather than either or. This is what enables our saints to forgive, to let go of hurts, to be compassionate, and even to love your enemies. In other words, to be healed. This is what takes us to the full and true healing that Jesus is talking about. Right? Your faith has healed you, saved you. Your faith has made you whole. How do we get faith like that? Prayer? but not just spoken prayer, the prayer of living out life as if Jesus' message is already true. Whether you feel it or not, like Teresa, whether you are healed or not, like Paul, just showing up to life, gradually seeing God in the pain as well as the joy and seeing the purpose in the pain that takes you to this place. That's what being healed, that's what being set free looks like. And you don't need to go to a healer for this. But sometimes it can help. Use all the tools at your disposal. Find the balance. And live it. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you so much. Once again, giving us all the tools that we need is so amazing. Help us to see that we've got these tools already with us that we can go where we need to go with you if we just start walking. Thank you for loving us the way that you do, Lord. Never let us forget. We can only do any of this. Love it all because you loved us first. In Jesus' name. Let's all stand.